Hey there, I'm Ruby Jones, the host of 7am. Over the next four days, we're bringing you some of our favourite episodes to listen to over the long weekend. Today, we're going back to our first ever story on coronavirus. Rick Morton reported this piece for us six weeks ago now, before we knew how COVID-19 was going to affect us all. He spoke to me about how the virus began with this fluke mutation, and he predicted how it would spread. It's fascinating to hear how much of what he said then has already become a reality. It's really just one gene, and that's the start of the novel coronavirus. There are these horseshoe bats that live in caves in China's Yunnan province. Sometimes they're called chrysanthemum bats. And, you know, they're kind of buzzing around these caves and just doing their own things. And these animals almost never come into contact with human beings because they live at night. And we have known for years that they've got these bat coronaviruses, this virus that lives very harmlessly in these animals. But the virus had its first fluke, which is to jump into another animal, possibly a civet, which is kind of a cat-like wild animal in China. And it sits there for a bit longer. Again, totally harmless. And then the virus wins the lottery. It has one mutation at precisely the right time that gives it access to the human genome. It's one protein that it needs to crack and it gets it right. And that's the start of coronavirus 2019. From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. From a bat cave in Yunnan province to a mobile hospital on Christmas Island, coronavirus could be the next pandemic. Today we're talking to Rick Morton, a senior reporter for the Saturday paper, about where it began and what's being done here in Australia to combat it. So the virus is very new, but it did kind of stalk undetected through you know, the population of Wuhan in China's Hubei province for weeks before we knew exactly what it was. Look, there's been a lot of talk about the um, Hunan uh, seafood market, which is a wet kind of slaughter market for animal trade, wild animal trade in, in Wuhan. A leading theory is that a worker inside this market contracted the virus from an animal. You've got urine and feces spraying from one, one enclosure to another, creating really an incubator for emerging viruses. And it's an extremely popular and busy place. And yes, many of the cases that had the new novel coronavirus had contact or worked in that seafood market. But the very first case, they had no epidemiological link. They had not been to the seafood market. They didn't know anyone who had been to the seafood market. They went to another market entirely. So it seems likely, although we can't be sure, that while the Hunan uh, seafood market acted as an amplifier for this infection and this outbreak, it was not ground zero for the outbreak. And that must have come from somewhere else, and we don't know where that was. Okay, so when those first cases were discovered, what did doctors in China do? So once China realised that they had an outbreak of some unknown viral pneumonia, it became quite urgent on their behalf to kind of crack the genome of this thing. And coronaviruses actually have the biggest genome of any known virus. There's 29,000 nucleotide pairs, which are kind of the, that's the instruction book for, for how to build this thing. The reason they had to crack the code was because once they had and they'd sequenced it and they knew that it was new, and then they could tell 
the World Health Organization, and then they could provide that data, which they did very quickly within a week. One uh, expert from, I think it was George Washington University, said it was insane. Um, it is totally unprecedented. When the SARS outbreak happened, which again is another type of coronavirus, very similar in genetic makeup, when that happened in 2002, 2003, it took five months to crack the code. So scientists cracked the genome, but at this stage there was no evidence that the virus was spreading between humans. So when was the first case of human-to-human transmission? So the first case of human-to-human transmission was actually detected in, in Guangdong province because somebody there was infected by their family members returning from Wuhan and those family members had visited someone else in Wuhan hospital. So the person who'd never left Guangdong got the disease. That's a turning point for what we know about the coronavirus because up until that point there was a, a hope, maybe a slim hope, that it could actually be contained in China because there was no clear proof that it could happen you know, outside of the bounds of animal-to-human contact. That's the kind of oh-no moment when it comes to viruses because that's, that allows exponential growth in the virus. We'll be back in a moment. This year, the Saturday paper celebrates 10 years as Australia's leading independent newspaper. In that time, it's built a peerless reputation for quality journalism, for telling stories that are ignored elsewhere. It's the essential account of the week in politics, culture and news. When you read the Saturday paper, you don't need to read anything else. Subscribe today from just $2.10 per week. Visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash subscribe. The Saturday Paper. The whole story. As a a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. Rick, we're talking about the spread of coronavirus. When did it go global? Where did it turn up first? So it was in Thailand first, within another week, or less than a week, of them announcing the genome. And then it was in Japan. There were two new cases in Japan over two days. Well, it is indeed the headline story for Japanese media, as it's the first case of the new coronavirus here in Japan. And this is still in mid-January. And then the Republic of South Korea... So with the pneumonia virus spreading across China, there's been the first case confirmed in South Korea. We now have 11 confirmed cases of the coronavirus here in South Korea. Four new cases were confirmed this afternoon. And then it went everywhere. Chinese health officials reported 45 new deaths, bringing the number of those killed uh, in China to 304. Crucially, though, more than 14,000 people are confirmed to have the illness. The latest data shows that it's turned up in over 29 countries. We now know, and World Health Authorities started to realise, that this thing would be self-sustaining. That also gives the virus its r naught value. And it's a fairly complicated term, but essentially it tells you how fast it spreads. The value for the the novel coronavirus 2019 is between two and three. It, at the moment, it's about 2.2, and that means that it can you know one person can infect two people, and those two people infect two more people each. So you know, for context, the SARS virus, there were about 10,000 people infected over a matter of months, and about 800 deaths. Now with 
the new coronavirus, we're already at 14,500 confirmed cases. And by the time we finish speaking, it'll probably be revised up again because that number is only increasing. So we know that coronavirus is extremely contagious, but how deadly is it? Coronavirus is, is less dangerous than the common flu. You know, the, the common flu in America kills more people uh, every day so far. So in terms of, you know, absolute fatalities, it's not that dangerous. The, the real threat of the coronavirus is the unknown and the uncertainty. And, and that's a threat for two reasons. One, because we don't know how this thing will mutate. And given it's spreading much faster than the SARS virus, much, much faster, every time it makes a jump into a new human host, that's another chance for mutation. And the more chances for mutation, the more chances it's going to strike on something that allows it to be even more deadly, to be even more infectious, which is the main, it's the raison d'etre of every virus everywhere, evolutionary speaking. It is designed to be the best at infecting something so that it continues to live. Can you talk me through Australia's reaction? So Australia at first, you know, we've now got over 12 confirmed cases and, you know, halfway through this epidemic, things were heading along as normal and then we decide that we're going to evacuate the 600-odd people from Wuhan and Hubei province, some of them Australian citizens, some of them not, who were living or spending time there. First Australians evacuated from the coronavirus epicentre in China have touched down on Christmas Island to begin 14 days of isolation. And Scott Morrison announced that these people were going to be quarantined, not just in a hospital isolation ward, but on Christmas Island, famous for, um, or infamous I should say, for holding asylum seekers in detention. We have taken a decision this morning uh, to prepare uh, a plan uh, for an operation to provide some assisted departures for isolated and vulnerable Australians in Wuhan and the Hubei province. Uh, this will be done. And um, at first, the Australian government, you know, said that they were going to make these people pay $1,000 for the honour of being repatriated to an island prison. And now we've gone one step further, and so we've banned anyone coming to Australia who've been in mainland China for the last 14 days. You know, you cannot get into the country now. There will be no visa. If you're an Australian citizen, sure, come on in. Not that I'm, you know, I've never been told that viruses can read passports, but there you go. And this is a strong, probably overcorrective response to, yes, a global health emergency, but one that needs to respond to science and facts. And this is not it. Do you think there's a racial dimension to the way Australia is responding to coronavirus? I do think there is a racial dimension, and I think that sometimes that can be confronting for people to hear, and in many cases it's quite unconscious. But, you know, we've got headlines calling this a China virus. A regional newspaper has had to apologise for this headline that used the phrase yellow alert. It is a virus we call the coronavirus. It is not China virus. Yeah, what we're going to do is isolate the virus, not Chinese. And yes, the virus originated in China, but that's not how people's brains interpret information. And when you've got the results of this, this kind of saturation media coverage now being people walking away from Asian people when they cough, we've had people questioning doctors of Chinese descent or even just Asian descent about whether they should be treating people given the coronavirus outbreak. And then we've got Australian citizens allowed back in the country from mainland China, but not Chinese tourists or Chinese people who aren't citizens. What's the difference when it comes to virology or epidemiology? What is the difference between those two categories of people? Rick, what are we going to do about coronavirus? 
So I, I spoke with Professor Paul Young, head of the School of Chemistry and Molecular Biosciences at University of Queensland, and they were asked within weeks of this you know, new virus coming out of China to design a vaccine, to build, test and implement a whole vaccine from scratch within 16 weeks. The team is about 20 strong and, and we're bringing um, uh, other groups at the University of Queensland on board. And up till now, there's, it's late night working and, uh, and weekends as well. So it is a constant, um, a constant run in the lab at the moment. Now, that is, not to put too fine a point on it, an amazingly difficult challenge. But they can do that, A, because we've got the virus genome and that came out so quickly from China. But also they've got this platform, they call it Molecular Clamp. Basically, it gives them a real solid chance of building a fake virus, a synthetic virus. If you can put a fake virus into the human body with this molecular clamp technology, it allows it to do so much more stably, and it doesn't totally disable the body's natural immune response, and that's what we need to train. So that's kind of ground zero of the the fight at the moment. If you can't stop it, it doesn't mean that it's going to run through the earth and turn everyone into zombies. It just means that you're going to have a virus, a new virus, like the cold and the flu and measles, that hangs around forever. So if you don't contain it, at some point, if you don't get that R value below one, then you just have to learn to live with this new virus. And we have to change. And that's not a good outcome. So we want to try and fight this thing now and, and beat it before we get to that point. And the ongoing fear. You know, fear is a cost. It's a cost to the psychology of being a human being, but it's also a cost to economies when people act as a group. And that's what certainly the markets have been reflecting. We still don't have an end to it. We're still in the middle of it. And it's probably not going to peak at least for another week before we know what the the future looks like. Rick, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Ruby. Appreciate it. The City of London in Andrew O'Hagan's latest novel is crumbling. But don't mistake this for pessimism. Instead, the author insists it's a necessary process for a better future. Change doesn't just happen because it's time for a change. Change has to be forced. We live in the end not in countries that are settled places. They're just imagined communities. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's Read This, I sit down with Andrew O'Hagan to discuss his latest Caledonian Road. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.